wait for someone to give us some kind of confirmation. All right, in theory, we're live. Uh, hey everyone, welcome to uh, Monday's open space here on my YouTube channel. I'm joined by Susanna Kohler, uh, who is works with the American Astronomical Society, uh, writes, you're the editor of Astronova, right? And, and uh, you're one of the founders of Astrobytes, right? Did I get all yes. that right? Yep, that's right. Whew. Um, and I, man, it's a, it's a funny time. I was sort of joking about this earlier. Uh, I've, it's, you know, the whole thing with the coronavirus has actually made things for me a lot more convenient because everybody now knows how to use zoom so that, uh, you know, I'm having to provide almost no technical support for, uh, for being able to get people into these interviews. And, um, uh, everyone is tra trapped at home in self quarantine. So, uh, everyone's, you know, able to do interviews. So just look forward to lots of, uh, lots of interviews this week. So, uh, Susanna, welcome, uh, welcome. And, uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah. So as you said, uh, I work for the American Astronomical Society currently. Uh, so my background is as an astronomy researcher. I did my PhD studying the relativistic jets that are emitted from the centers of active galaxies. Uh, and then when I finished up my PhD, the American Astronomical Society hired me to do science communication for them. So uh, I work um, with the journals. So uh, the AAS uh, has a series of scientific journals that they publish and um, the professional society as a whole, all of the researchers in it and beyond, uh, many publish in these journals. And as we all know, when, when scientists publish papers, they're really intended kind of for the specific scientific subfield. Um, but there are a lot of people beyond that subfield who might be interested in reading the work that's in these, these research papers. So my job is to go in and summarize some of the articles that are being published and make that more broadly accessible to the larger astronomy community and to the, the broader interested public. Yeah, and I mean, Astrobytes is one of my favorite sources on the on the internet because, like as you said, like there's there's mountains of really interesting research that's being done and it's being published, both in the prepress through archive, but also in all the different journals, and just a tiny fraction of that is actually making it out into the larger world. And a lot of that is purely because, you know, that wh whoever did the research just didn't have the ear of the press officer that day. Absolutely. And and so reading through Astrobytes, can you tell us just a bit about about how that works and and you know how you started this? Yeah. So Astrobytes started uh, a while ago. It's been nearly a decade, actually. Yeah. Started in 2010. It was actually a group of five graduate students at Harvard. I was not one of them. I joined like a month after. So I'm not technically a founder. Okay. Um, but when we started out, it was Early a really adopter. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and the idea really um, was that we were trying to solve a problem that we had all had as, as undergraduates where it's really hard to get into the field of astronomy research because you start on your first research project and um, your advisor hands you this stack of papers and says, all right, go read these and then come back and we'll talk about it. <laughs> and nobody ever trains you how to do that. And so uh, the problem that Astrobytes was conceived to solve was uh, this is just kind of an introductory step for undergraduates, a way of getting your feet wet in, in astronomy research without necessarily going out and slogging through those papers yourself. 
And it turns out there was a huge demand for this. Yeah. And in fact, we, uh, you know, we grew in authorship really quickly. Now we hire 30 new authors every year, you know, and that's more, uh, fewer than are applying to be authors. Um, and we also grew in readership and we did a reader survey a couple of years in to see, you know, who are we reaching thinking, yeah, we're writing these articles for undergrad students. Uh, and it turned out that the vast majority of our readership was actually graduate students, professional astronomers who just don't have time yeah. to keep with that huge flux of papers, like you said, that's coming out every day. Yeah, I mean, you look through the, there's about 80 to 100 new stuff that's on on archive, you know, and that's pre-press, so it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be ending up on, um, you know, in an actual journal, but it's pretty close. I mean, it's, it's you know, often I find if there's like a journal article is locked and I can't get access to it, I'll just go find it on, on archive and, you know, it's pretty close to what the final science was for my purposes, mm -hmm. you know, as a journalist. But but you look through the list and and you'll miss the important stories Like you just you because the whoever is doing the research hasn't done a good job of telling the story of what it is that they've written. And yet, you know, you go to, uh, you know, the when the press officer picks it up and goes, OK, what's our story here? Oh, OK, I get it. You know, this is the farthest. This is the most powerful. This is the, you know, the second ever, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns into a story that then you'll see on a hundred different websites because someone got that ball rolling, mm -hmm. and and it's it's and it's that gap that that has always needed to be filled. And I and like you're like the only ones filling it. It's so yeah. weird to me. That yeah, this... it is really strange. The thing that's so frequently missing from these is context. You know, yeah. when yeah. when scientific papers are written, it's usually without that context because it's assumed that. The person reading the paper has it already and that's just not the case if you're not already in that subfield so what sites like astrobytes and double nova are bringing is that that context the broader picture of of why this matters and what the main point is yeah yeah absolutely and so i think you know for starters i would love to hear your advice for astronomers who are you know people who are in the field and want to get into the field and like what, how much should thinking about communicating their work play as part of their, of their research? I mean, I think that's a personal choice that everyone has to make as, as a scientist. Um, obviously I'm biased and I think that everyone should care about communicating their research and communicating it clearly. And I think that the field is kind of coming around to this. Uh, it's becoming a lot less taboo to talk about things like science communication uh, than it was a decade ago, for sure. Um, but it, I mean, is it like, was it taboo? I think there was this idea that there's no need to necessarily make your work accessible beyond the immediate researchers you might be collaborating with. And I think it's only now that people are realizing that that it's important. I mean, even as a graduate student myself, if I go back and read uh, some of the first papers I wrote, they are incredibly dense and terrible to get through. And like, I was an awful communicator because I thought that was what was necessary in order to prove that I was a real scientist. Like I have to write it in a dense, jargony, you know, encapsulated way. And that's not actually the case. Scientists don't have to make that choice. They can actually make their papers accessible to begin with. Um, but even beyond that, you know, you don't have to write your paper necessarily for 
a general audience, but you can write a blog post about your paper or you can find some other way of communicating about it. And I think that's a decision everyone has to make. What about the recommendation about, about uh, requiring that papers include some kind of like lay person um, write up as part of the paper? I think that's a great idea. I wish that every journal did that. Um, that's something that the journals at the American Astronomical Society don't do yet. I'm hoping that'll change in the future. Yeah. Uh, the question becomes, you know, who who writes those? Do the authors themselves have to write up something like that? And if so, how do you prove that? Yeah. Um, you know. Well, I mean, or do you hire people to write them? I mean, you can even just include it as the you know, the synopsis at the, at the top of your, of your paper. I mean, mm -hmm. I, th I think, I mean, this is, this is the part and it's weird. I mean, I, I, for all the people who I think do a really good job of both doing science, but also doing science communication, I keep bringing up this conversation with them and I don't feel like I've really gotten a satisfactory answer because on the one hand, you have this enormous public relations machine that exists to to help publicize the work that's being done at the university, that there are real salaries and there's a department and there's people who come in every day and they do this work. And their job is to make the work of the university look good. And yet there's, and so clearly communicating the work that's happening at the university is, is meant to look good and essentially to showcase the research that's being done. And yet there really is it really, I mean, you know, I don't know if it's taboo, but it's definitely, you know, even some of the best communicators I've talked to feel like it is not a necessary thing. In fact, it's, it's there, it is kind of, um, not shunned, but frowned upon to be a good communicator of your science work. Like that's a disconnect. I agree. Connect I agree. it for me. <laughs> I, I really do think that the, um, the attitudes around that are shifting. I think there, there are a lot more conversations about how this is an important component of, you know, of doing research is communicating it. I think that um, definitely is the case in the current political spectrum, you know, trying to be better about getting this information out to lawmakers to make sure that it has an influence on the budget. Um, I think there are more professional development programs available now providing things like science communication training to scientists. So I, I think there really is a shift around the conversation with this, um, but there's yeah. still work to be done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it even like, you know, there's a lot of people that wouldn't hire uh, a Neil deGrasse Tyson or a Brian Cox or, a, you know, like these people who are very famous now communicators, but also astronomers in their own right, that that is considered a downside if you're a good communicator, because you're maybe not a good researcher. Like it's taking away from your research time. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is known as the Sagan effect. Yeah. Yeah. Carlson. Yeah. And, uh, I really don't think that's as strong as it once was. Right. You have made a big step yeah. in that. Yeah, because and because then I think you see a lot of people who have a real passion for science communication who are doing just incredible work. And and like even like right now as we're going through uh, this illness, um, this worldwide illness. Uh, apparently, you know, YouTubers aren't allowed to talk about it because we get hidden from the U YouTube algorithm. Anyway, everyone knows what I'm talking about. Um, that 
the, what we need is clear science communication by the people who have done the work and understand what's going on. And, and yet, so anyway, I, you don't have my answers. I'll just keep, I'll just keep searching until I find them. So then, so let's talk a bit about, you know, I think that you are, I mean, you're a classic example of the person who started out in research and has shifted over into communication. So can you talk a bit about that, about that sort of career journey that you took and maybe what recommendations you have for people who want to be able to follow in those kinds of footsteps? Yeah. Um, so I realized pretty early on in grad school that while I really enjoyed astronomy research, uh, the sharing of it was what I enjoyed the most. And so it was pretty clear to me that I, I wanted to take a track that would get me into a science communication job. Um, at the time, it was maybe a little difficult to find information about what sorts of jobs are available in that field. Um, but I decided to go ahead and finish my, my PhD because I wanted the experience of being a scientific researcher first before I went that route. Uh, so I just, I did a lot of science communication projects on the side, you know, Astrobytes was one of those getting involved in, in doing lots of science writing to get used to that. Um, and then in 2013, I founded with a group of other STEM graduate students, ComSciCon, mm -hmm. which is a science communication workshop um, for STEM graduate students by STEM graduate students. And uh, being involved in that really kind of, uh, gave me a lot of insight into what sort of options were available to me. So I would say that was kind of the point that that launched me down that trajectory. Yeah, and, and I, you guys I, brought me out for one ComSciCon, yeah, which was a- 2015, yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was a ball. I had a great time and it was a lot of fun to be able to sort of see that next generation of, of science communicators. So, so how, you know, what you learned, if you could sort of, you know, I'm sure you get the, this question all the time, which is how, how do you recommend people if they have that same feeling, which is like, I do love the science, but I'm more interested in sharing the science. What should they do? Uh, absolutely. Just plunge into it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the best recommendation I can give because yeah. once you start doing science communication in whatever form you can get involved in, whether it's, you know, writing for a website like Astrobytes or having your own personal blog or getting involved in a podcast or going and giving talks to the planetarium or, you know, there's so many different things you can do. Yeah. But once you start doing something like that, you meet other people who are doing it and new opportunities arise. And it's just, it's really amazing because the community of science communicators are just incredible. And, you can, know, once, once you meet them. Yeah. Can people make a career out of this? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There are all kinds of careers you can make out of this. Uh, what really amazed me. I mean, me, we both got one. I mean, so obviously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So ComSciCon, we bring in panelists like you. Um, so we have a whole bunch of professional science communicators who come in and every year it's a different set of panelists. And so uh, it's been really interesting in being involved with ComSciCon every year, um, the last seven years seeing just the huge variety of science communication professions that are available from, you know, science writing, more traditional uh, journalism, to uh, being science consultant for Breaking Bad, or, you know, working in the film industry, or being a scientific illustrator. Now that's a sweet job. Working yeah, for, right? you know, being the first Star Trek. 
right? Yeah, science yeah, consultant. Yeah. Super awesome. I mean, there's just like such a broad range of science communication positions out there, and, and you can definitely, you know, make an entire career out of it. Yeah. Uh, so the other part of your career, of course, is the work you're doing with the American Astronomical Society. And is that the bulk of your work now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I work full time for the American Astronomical Society. And the bulk of what I do is running AAS Nova, which is primarily the summaries of recent research papers that have been published in our journals. Um, but then I also work with the publishing team, kind of improving the things that we offer through the journals. And, and I mean, AAS Nova really feels like a blend almost between Astrobytes and a more press releasey kind of operation. So, yeah. you know, as the editor, what tone, what are you, what are you aiming for and who's your audience? Uh, my audience nominally is um, the astronomy community in general. The goal is to kind of take the results that our authors are, are writing up and make them more broadly accessible to the astronomy community. Um, but oftentimes the, the papers that I write up are, you know, at a, at a level that astronomy enthusiasts can absolutely yeah. Uh, read and, and I, yeah I mean I, I often will um, draw on them for like videos that I'm doing I'll use them as sources references so absolutely I think it's you know it's definitely reaching out beyond just the professional astronomers yeah yeah I mean I, I think the goal really is to just kind of take you know the meat of a paper boil it down to 500 words with enough context that you don't already have to know the field to know what's going on in it and and that works for most people. And like, what percentage of the of the papers the, of the journal papers that are going through your system are actually making it to Nova? Pretty small percentage. Yeah, we have a lot of papers. I think we publish more, well, more than four thousand papers a year at this point. Uh, and Nova is publishing three articles a week plus a repost of an Astrobytes article. So yeah, it's, it's a very small percentage. Yeah. yeah. Um, and don't yeah. you feel like, I just feel sad for all yeah. of those stories know, that because there's so much yeah. out there. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I started out making the selections myself of, of which papers would be highlighted on Nova. And that was so challenging to begin with. Now I have the scientific editors of the journal send me their recommendations of the yeah. articles that are like, especially high impact and of, of broader interest. And even so, I have a list far longer than I yeah. can cover. <laughs> and have you found that that some of the stories that you cover have 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 had the chance to break out to get a wider audience and sort of take a second life? Yeah, yeah, some of them absolutely have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it depends on the the topic, and you know, I specifically try to choose the articles that I know are not coming from somewhere where the authors are already working with their institute to put together press releases. Um, because I want to make sure one of the main points of AAS Nova is to bring attention to those those research articles that would otherwise fly under the radar that you would just miss otherwise because maybe the authors don't have an institute that has a strong press office or maybe they don't even know that press releases are a thing you know or maybe yeah. it's undergraduates who have written the paper. I, I mean, I, you know, again, as a you know, my side as an editor and publisher. I don't need a full press release and often I just need scraps. I need to see a cool picture. I need to see, 
a description of some behind the scenes of an interesting result that's been turned up with work that's being done. And that's often enough for us to kind of know that that is something that we want to follow up on. And, and that I think if you know, if I could communicate that to the people that are doing this work is like, you don't need to go through the full you know, Hubble space telescope press release with all the pictures and the associated videos and, and so on. And so if, if the work is interesting, even just a hint of what's happening is fascinating. Like when we were covering all the whole Betelgeuse dimming, we definitely got more news from Twitter from some really some researchers working in the field who were then going into tremendous detail about what was going on and what we think and and it was incredibly valuable for us to be able to put together a more comprehensive story. Yeah, absolutely. I think the uh, the landscape of, of scientific research publishing is changing dramatically, you know. And so having, first off, something like the archive where, where astronomers are publishing their preprints even before they're published in journals speeds up the timeline a lot. But now with Twitter, I mean, that's just whole nother level of, of speed there where people are, as they're discovering things, they're putting them up on Twitter. And it's a way of really kind of getting that information out there so quickly. And yeah, like you said, being able to just grab pieces of that to put together the bigger picture is, is pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, it does rely on us knowing, kind of knowing what we're doing, <laughs> but, and, and <laughs> you know, cause I mean, at the same time, you see a ton of articles from certain UK newspapers about impending asteroid impacts and you know they're obviously just like trolling through the minor planet center <laughs> listings or whatever right um, the number of times I get inquiries yes <laughs> yeah I know I know me too so let's let's talk about the uh the American Astronomical Society meeting and you know this may not be directly what you're doing but I'm sure you've been involved in some of the conversations so yeah. um again thanks to this stupid outbreak um it's having an effect on our lives so what what are you guys doing for the next meeting that is a great question uh that's not officially settled yet but um the word that went out as of i believe yesterday maybe the day before yesterday is that we are definitely looking into the option of turning this into a virtual meeting um I believe, so the, the meeting was supposed to be in Madison, Wisconsin, and I believe the governor of Wisconsin, you know, has limited yeah. gathering to below 250 people. So obviously if that's the case- 3,000 is out. Yeah, yeah, seems pretty likely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so assuming we move to a virtual meeting, you know, there's it's still being discussed in terms of what kind of software, what kind of options are gonna be available. But, yeah. you know, obviously the, the hope is to take this beyond, you know, broadcasting the lectures because that's not really all that a meeting is about. There's so much more to it. So, yeah, it's, I mean, I can, you know, having been to a bunch of them now, I mean, even I've definitely sat in meetings that were absolutely fascinating. And I know that I was getting access to information that, that none of my colleagues who weren't in that room wouldn't, you know, just wouldn't know. So yeah. I think there's just value to broadcasting this information to as wide an audience as as fits the the AAS. Just that in any way, right? Um, but I but now if it's not actually going to be in you know in set rooms and you know does definitely make things more complicated. What tool will you use to broadcast? How will people be able to talk to each other, asking questions? How will you get the text to the question? So on and so forth. Yeah, the logistics Absolutely. will be yeah. will be tough for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
But, you know, uh, Astrobytes, one of the things that they've been doing now for years is live blogging these conferences. They'll go and, you know, there'll be a team of five or 10 Astrobytes authors at the meetings going around to the sessions, and then they'll write up summaries of the sessions afterwards. And I think there's still absolutely the opportunity to do that in this context. Um, in terms of the poster sessions, uh, we were actually planning already this summer to have, for the first time, go to a fully eye poster session, no physical paper posters. Um, we've already at previous meetings yep. had a substantial fraction of, of eye posters. And so this was going to be a trial of like, go fully e-poster here and see yeah. what happens. And so this is actually kind of cool because we're already set up in the infrastructure of that to have all of the posters online, be able to hopefully, you know, do some sort of interactive means of, of viewing all of those and discussing with the authors. Yeah, and that, and that's what I think you're, we're experiencing now is, again, unfortunately, um, we're all being forced to to work from home. And necessity being the mother of invention, people are figuring out ways to work together in in new ways. And my and my guess is that some of these are going to end up being so convenient and so um, th that are going to work well that they'll keep doing it even after they're allowed to you know come back into their offices. Absolutely. And it could very well be. I mean, I got a chance to, to try out the eye posters when I was at the last conference, the one in Hawaii. And it was great. I loved it. You know, the person would stand beside their screen and they, they had all the information that they needed required, but you could also browse through them. Yeah. It was a it was a great system and you could definitely see it just being on the I mean, just the whole idea of the poster is so weird. So yeah, in the age absolutely. of the web browser. So and I mean it's cool to be able to incorporate elements that you can't otherwise, like videos. I mean, that's that's neat to be able to have that as a part of the poster experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as you said, I mean, a lot of this, um, you know, is stuff that has been in conversation before. I mean, from a sustainability standpoint, we've been talking for years about, you know, how can we reduce the, the carbon footprint of these meetings? And it's been, you know, virtual meetings have been floated in the past, but the technology just wasn't there. And I think now that's going to be catching up real quick <laughs> with the current situation. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one because there is a tremendous amount of value to being in the same place together to talk. You know, for us, we can run around with a camera and interview people all over the place, which is great. But for um, but for a lot of people, they feel bad about you know, traveling that far and uprooting yeah. themselves. And it's, you know, for the longest time, we didn't actually attend them uh, just because it was such a lot of work to get there and, you know, and get to and from the hotel every day. It's, it's yeah. tough to, yeah. you know, um, so I, so I think that'll be great. I think, you know, and I hope, I hope that some version of it runs, you know, like an enhanced uh, virtual version uh, runs, but I guess it's just a couple of months to try and figure this out if that's the, if that's well, the plan. Yes and no. I mean, I think we're not necessarily tied to the original dates either. So, um, yeah, you, know, you have to, yeah, we'll see. But I'm, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of hope, uh, amongst the, the staff right now that this is also an opportunity as well as challenging. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want, I got a couple of questions here. Um, this comes from uh, Veronica Cure on on Twitch, which is, what is the point of research if the results aren't shared? And this is sort of back to the original question that I had I'd asked you. Um, what do you think about that? Absolutely, I I personally agree. I think 
that sharing the results, I, I don't know that anyone would argue that sharing the results is not necessary in any format, mm -hmm. but I think people differ about how far those results need to be shared. And I personally agree that they should be shared broadly to everyone because, you know, this is valuable information that everyone should have access to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're in this environment where some pieces of research are freely available and others are behind paywalls. I don't yeah. where where are the American Astronomical Society ones on that mm -hmm. spectrum? Uh, so they are paywalled for 12 months and then they're completely free. It's a green open access model. Right. Um, but you're also allowed to publish the research that's been published in the AAS journals to the archives, the preprint server at any time. So basically it's the go ahead to make this freely available immediately. And the only reason it's behind the paywall is to for the first year is so that we have some sort of income to keep the journals going. Well, that's the question, right? Which is like the, the, the journals, I mean, like nature and science and all of this, right? They, their revenue is the subscriptions that are paid to print up the journals and send them around. And, and they have tremendous expenses. They have the peer reviewers, they have all of the printing and coordination expenses, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, and from their perspective, you can absolutely see how they want to maintain that model. And yet, for a lot of people, they have this position that science should be free, uh, freely available, that, you know, that, that you're really uncovering information about nature, um, but it took a lot of work. So it's, it's a major challenge. This, yeah, this is a problem in general, right? Because uh, when you're running a journal, it does cost money, you know, not just for the printing expenses, but like we've got data reviewers, we've got statistics reviewers. There's, I mean, there's just like a ton of, and, and like it pays my salary, of course. So I'm biased. Yeah, here, of course, you know? of course. Yeah. yeah, no. yeah. Um, so you, you can't do all of that for free, but then you don't want to make the, the cost of accessing the information too high, but you also don't want to make the cost of publishing the information high. You know, so some journals have a business model where the fee all goes on the author. It costs to, to publish. Some journals have a model where the fee all goes on the subscribers. It costs to read. Some journals have a hybrid model. That's the AAS journals where it's a small amount to subscribe and a small amount to publish in. And that way that can kind of be adjusted based on whether university grants are tight or library, you know, money is tight or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, with with what the way I run Universe Today is, you know, we have advertisements on the website and then we also have Patreon and mm -hmm. it's about like 25 percent Patreon and 75 percent ad revenue. Okay. And and but and I see a lot of people starting to go behind paywalls for their publishing their their websites, you know, um, three articles and then you have to sign up or you know, Wired is, has gone behind the paywall and um, uh, Discover. Anyway, there's a, there's a bunch that are yeah. that are starting to go that that route, and mm -hmm. more are clearly that's the the trajectory they're on. Yeah. And you know, my feeling is is really that that it's our like knowledge should be free, and so it's really hard for me to justify putting the work we do on universe today behind a paywall and because yeah. I want people around the world to be able to, to access it. And so mm -hmm. 
that's the value. That's why, you know, that's what the Patreon does, does for us. And, and, and the ads go a long way as well. I would love to get to a point where, um, we can even remove the ads and just go with pure mm -hmm. Patreon. Right. Absolutely. Um, but I'll never go paywall. Yeah. And and the the way I make that work is I'm just incredibly cheap and work for my <laughs> work for my house. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. And drive an old car and uh -huh. you know what I mean. Like. Yeah. yeah. That's the I think the, and and so I think that that's a decision that that more and more of these sites are going to have to make, and I don't think that there are necessarily um, a lot of there's a lot of room for New York Timeses and. Washington Posts is etc. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And WS Nova, of course, isn't paywalled. You know, that's completely free to access. It's just the articles that yeah. are paywalled for a year. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and it's true that right now the academic publishing landscape is changing a lot as well. Um, there's been a real movement towards open access. Um, and that is definitely causing a shift in the landscape because if all of the government funding agencies start mandating that academic researchers can only publish in open access journals, uh, that will kind of force all of these, these journals to move to a model where then they have to charge author fees. Right. In order to stay afloat, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it shifts the burden and we wanna make sure that you know, authors who are at institutes that don't necessarily have a lot of funding or they don't have a mm -hmm. lot of grant money aren't, you know, necessarily precluded from being able to publish. But we also want to make sure that the research yeah. gets out because that's the point. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, what are some other models that you that you like? Someone, Arjun is asking on, on YouTube, uh, could scientists have Patreons for, for publishing? So, I mean, that's has anyone question. looked into those kinds of, of models? I don't know. Yeah. I'm not that's that's not something I had ever you know like crowdfunding scientific research is not something I have heard much about yeah there have been a few projects to do that um mm -hmm. you know my concern is that it will sort of it'll fund the panda bear absolutely cuddling research yeah. but not yeah. necessarily and, and planet hunting yeah and, and not necessarily some of the more obscure yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. I, I think that it's, it's tough to, to try to turn science into a popularity contest because a yeah. lot of the most interesting discoveries come from, you know, not, <laughs> um, you know, super sexy, um, you know, parts of science. Hand, maybe it's going to make scientists better at uh, communicating their research. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Maybe it, will, it brings it all around. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. That's that's absolutely a challenge. Um, some journals do have a different model, which is that they're funded by the government. Um, and that, you know, would be grand because that solves all of the problems. But <laughs> the likelihood of that happening here anytime soon is low. So, I mean, like if you're a scientist and you are and you're looking for, say, grant money, do you have to set aside a budget for uh, like a fee paying journal if that's the plat the path you're going to take? Yeah, effectively, you have a, a publishing budget, assuming that the journals you regularly pub publish in charge a fee. And some journals, so AAS journals offer an option of gold open access. So you basically pay more upfront as the author to absorb the fees of, of reading it 
for the readers. So that means that when you publish, your article will be free immediately to everyone to read, but you have to pay a little more upon publishing it. Yeah. Um, so if, you know, if, if open access is something that's important to you, you might budget a little more in your grant proposal for publishing gold open access. Yeah. Um, a question from, uh, let me see, there's an interesting question just came up. Um, it's from Nekog one Earl. Uh, do you need a degree to get into science communication? I think there are a lot of different paths to mm -hmm. get into science communication. And I think it, that's part of what makes it a really interesting field is that it brings together people from a whole lot of different backgrounds and they all have different strengths and skills as a result. So I think one route is going in the way I did, get a PhD in science, get a degree in science of some variety and go there. Uh, but another route is, is being trained as a communicator or as a journalist or you know as an artist or any number of, of other fields that you can go into and then mm -hmm. have a specialty in science. So yeah. I, I think that depends. Yeah, I mean, I think from, you know, definitely I'm the perfect example of someone who didn't get their degree in in astronomy, you know, mines in computer science mm -hmm. um, and the and I definitely didn't have a degree in in writing or communication or journalism or any of that, that that was just practice. Right. And that's the you know, um, you know, my advice on that is always just just do the work and yeah. you'll eventually get good enough to that people will take notice. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of just go out there, try it, figure out what you like and what you don't like, because that's an important part. You might think you want to do a thing and then you start doing it and it turns out the day to day sucks. So that's definitely important to know sooner rather than later. Do you uh, find but, with the like with the Astrobytes people, the alumni, do they you know, what percentage of them keep on with their science communication and which you know, just focus on the research. I don't have a, you know, an actual numbers <laughs> breakdown I can give you, but um, just anecdotally, I know that the alumni of Astrobytes have really gone into a pretty broad range of, of fields. A lot of them have stayed in academia and are now faculty at R1 institutes. Uh, some of them have gone into teaching. Some of them have gone like me into science communication fields. Um, so it's, it's kind of cool that it's it's resulted in this pretty broad range of, of outcomes. Um, another question from Arjon, how does one gain clout as a science communicator? Ooh, yeah, you can probably answer that better than I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, from, I don't know, do it for 20 years? Yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> Just yeah, keep... do it for 20 years, build a following. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do yeah. I do think, though, that... that that it is important to put some emphasis on the building a following on just on being available and being accessible to the to the audience if that's a thing that you want to be able to do so you definitely want to have a social media presence so people can tweet at you to send you messages and publish your email like that's the part that i find sometimes a little frustrating is you know i'll try to find a person behind a story who is clearly good at what they're doing and they just make it so difficult for me to find <laughs> out who they are Right. Yeah. Someone publishes just a beautiful um, infographic or they they do this great cartoon or they, you know, I really love when people will go to like conferences and they'll draw really intricate um, 
sort of sketches of the research that's being done and they'll post it on Pinterest, you know, and I'm like, who did this? Because you don't want to, you know, you don't want to steal it. So you've got to yeah, get to the cool. source and they make it really hard for me. So like, yeah. man, just just like stop making it difficult for people to find out who you are. Like just start <laughs> there and then move to um, actually trying to to develop a, a following. But I don't even know what clout means. Like, you know, what is clout as a science communicator? I mean, I think a component of it is um, having credibility. And then a component of it is getting your work out there. And, you know, those, those are both tough. It's, yeah. I think as much a game of chance as anything sometimes. You know, Astrobytes really took off after um, Phil Plate, Fat Astronomer, posted about it or tweeted about it or something. And all of a sudden, then Astrobytes had a, a readership and it grew exponentially from there. But it, it took that first seed of just somebody who was willing to kind of give us a little bit of a plug. Uh, to build it into something as big as it is now. Uh, some of the CosmoQuest folks are telling telling me that I should point out that you've got a sticker on your wall behind you there somewhere. Oh, you bet I do. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Many, in fact. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to come back from a conference. I have like, I have snowdrifts of stickers from the last conference piled up. Um, yep. Yep. Um, so, uh, Flask on Twitch want, is wondering what life was like at UC Boulder. How was that as a school? Oh man, I loved it there. <laughs> I want to go back. <laughs> yeah, Boulder is great. It's, um, I mean, Boulder as a location is amazing, but the program there is really, really great. It's a large program. Um, and so that was part of what appealed to me when I started out there is I didn't quite know what it was that I wanted to research yet. And they research so many different topics that I knew that even if it took me a while to find the one that clicked with me, I would be able to find it there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, Phil Phil Plate's living in Boulder. I got a chance to visit uh, his him once, uh, pre goats, but um, <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful town and uh, with a just incredible kind of mountains, just over sort of right over over the top of the city and just amazing landscape all around it and really cool vibe to it. I can see why yeah, ending up it's in that town. And everyone's outside all the time. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to skip research for an afternoon to go skiing and then make it up later, nobody's going to bat an eye. It's, it's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. And, fo and following up on the, uh, you know, seeing the Mork and Mindy house. We, we did, we did that as well. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, Cool. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about your about your research and how I mean, obviously, I'm assuming you've been following the work that's been done. So let's talk a bit more about like what you what you researched uh, in my PhD. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I looked at um, the structure that jets take when they're emitted from the, the black holes at the centers of really active galaxies. So we see these black holes are spewing out jets. So when, when matter accretes onto a black hole, um, a lot of it gets actually flung out in these jets. And instead of spraying out in all directions like a garden hose, they're like super collimated. And we want to know why. And so my research was looking at what sorts of interactions with the environment these jets might have that would make them collimated. And when did you do your work? Like, when did you publish your 
your uh, so my work was on this. so I graduated in 2014 so my work was like 2011 2014 -ish. right okay okay mm -hmm. um and so do we know the answer now <laughs> we we know more pieces of it yeah. for sure um we definitely think that the the pressure of the environment makes a difference but more and more uh it's pretty clear that magnetic fields play an important role you know one of the big sets of questions we're trying to answer is is how do these jets get launched in the first place and then why do they take the shape that they do and all of that can kind of be answered with magnetic fields so so just to be clear right we've got the the actively feeding supermassive black holes at the hearts of various galaxies and and they're getting these gigantic accretion disks around them of material that's waiting to to join the you know the 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 meal um and then you get these incredible jets that are moving at a significant fraction of the speed of light right yes. at the at the poles of the of the black hole mm -hmm. and so how <laughs> yeah <laughs> why exactly. that is the question we're trying to answer yeah um, so, so you can construct a scenario where this black hole is threaded by magnetic fields. And as you twist those fields up, that process is providing a place to channel the, the material out and up to launch this jet and, and send it out into space. But that's, that's the open question that we've been trying for decades to solve. It's like, what is the actual process for this? And it's, it's really difficult because simulations of this just are incredibly computationally expensive to to involve all of the physics that takes place in this sort of environment um you know it, it's just really hard to to do so without like cutting out all of the complicating factors but the complicating factors are probably the things that make it work right, right? i mean yeah. what is the cause of like what is actually causing the magnetic field in the first place i mean i guess i'm kind of imagining like the sun has a magnetic field and the accretion disk around a black hole is sort of just like a lot of suns all mashed up and spun <laughs> around a black hole right so whatever happens in the sun just happens more extreme yeah so regions, i mean right? the you know this this material is magnetized itself and you know you've got this tangle of magnetic field lines and it's just all it's a big complicated mess and that's part of the question is trying to figure out like how magnetized are black holes? How magnetized is the environment around them? You know, what happens to these field lines as they get twisted up around the black hole? Uh, does reconnection happen? Do the, the field lines break and reconnect in new ways and release energy in the process? I mean, kind uh, of like we have flares on the sun, right? Is mm -hmm. that, exactly. is like that yeah. exact kind of environment? Yep. yep. Except to the a extreme yeah. that's really hot and probably really magnetized and and we're trying to figure out what happens to it in that state yeah um how did how was it how did it feel seeing the first pictures from from m87 that was really cool <laughs> yeah that was awesome and it was also really cool how cool everyone else found it Right. Because I like this came out and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And I'm thinking like everybody's going to be like, oh, this is such a disappointing, blurry blob. Right. And everyone else is like, wow, this is amazing. We're looking at a black hole. And it's it's so cool that this this story just really traveled all over the oh, world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're still waiting for Sagittarius A star 
Mm-hmm. It's close up. Do you, do, you have any, do you have any inside knowledge on when we might see that? I don't. I am anxiously waiting with yeah. everyone else. Yeah, I, I really hope that they are. I, I recognize that it's a more challenging problem. Yeah, I'd heard that one of the big problems is, is that it's a much more dynamic environment. Well, mm-hmm. you know, M87 is so far away, you're seeing blobs take weeks to yes. go around the black hole while at Sagittarius A star, you may have them happening in the matter of minutes, which, yeah. you know, it's, it's yeah, the, of... the difference is that uh, it's the size of the black hole because M87 is so large, the time scales are longer, whereas our black hole is big, but it's not that big. And so the time scales are faster. So there's a lot more variability. And it's, you know, also we're looking through the galaxy to see it, which is complicating matters as well. Yeah. So it's it's definitely a little more challenging to observe, but I sure hope we can do it. Do you, I mean, what do you think the future holds then for, for this kind of work? Like what is some interesting research that's being done in this field now? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming every time you see a paper from the people that you recognize, the people that you worked with, the people who are chewing on this problem beyond where you took it, what is some of the sort of cutting edge work that you're really fascinated about right now? I mean, really, the stuff that that evolves rapidly is computing power and numerical techniques that allow us to do, you know, increasingly more realistic simulations. And that's part of what's really exciting, finally getting the the observations from the Event Horizon Telescope is now, you know, the simulations have even more to compare to. Right. Okay. Because you can sort of verify that what you were simulating is essentially correct. Yeah, absolutely. So my my research is as a theorist. In fact, everything I was doing was actually pen and paper, just like working out the math. Right. <laughs> um, but in terms of people who do that, people who do simulations, like it, you can make a lot of advances in terms of understanding how you think things work. But until you can compare it to new observations, you can't take that next step to say, okay, now let's try something more complicated. And, and really having these these observations means now we can do more complicated simulations and, and see how that compares and, and learn more from that. So it's, it's constantly a game of catch up, you know, of, of theory getting ahead of observations and then observations getting ahead of theory. And you just kind of leapfrog back and forth and, and learn from that process. Although it is kind of amazing the amount of progress that, that has been made. Have you, have you gone back and watched Cosmos, like the original Carl Sagan Cosmos anytime recently. Like I think yeah. like in the first episode, they talk about quasars and they're like, like, we don't know what quasars are. Maybe they're this and maybe they're <laughs> that and maybe they're black holes, but we don't yeah. know. Um, and then you're like, Carl, 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 we do know. We do know the answer. <laughs> um, and then you, you know, and then this, this idea, there's like three different kinds of objects. There's like quasars and and radio galaxies and and realizing that it's all the same object just seen at different at different angles so yeah so like we really are making a tremendous amount of of progress and yet the the work is you know is sort of still tough black holes are apparently not giving up their secrets very easily it's a slow process it is interesting though the the way that the processes around black holes seem to scale up Right, so I just mentioned like the difference in size between M87 and, and our black hole, Sag A star. But then you can scale down even smaller to like stellar mass black holes. And the activity there is 
much, much, much faster. And so there's a lot you can learn by looking at um, in real time, the activity at a stellar mass black hole, and then comparing it to looking at a large sample of supermassive black holes and seeing them at those different stages individually. So even though you can't see like the real time environment changes and whatnot, mm -hmm. you can see black holes in different stages and compare that to the real time stuff. So it's, it's neat to be able to like, have this basis of comparison across different mass scales and time scales. And that's something that we've really expanded on. Do we see, we see those jets from the stellar mass black holes as well? We do, absolutely, yes. Just yeah. not so the like same. Like X-ray binaries, for instance. Yeah. You've got a black hole in an orbit with an ordinary star, and that star is donating matter into an accretion disk. So then that's accreting onto the, the black hole, and you get jets from that. And, you know, all of this is, you know, like, the theoretical work that I did didn't actually have a scale. Like you could picture it as a stellar mass black hole or as a supermassive black hole because the processes we expect to be all the same. It's it's just, it scales up with the mass of the black hole. Right, and the amount of material that's, but I guess the, the mass of the black hole sort of is defined by the amount of material that's making its way into it. Would this be a way to find primordial black holes by maybe them flaring briefly as the jet is passing our point of view yeah so i mean I, it's like a the, almost like a standard candle yeah so like tidal disruption events are basically that right it's that you've got black holes that aren't currently accreting matter or weren't accreting matter so you couldn't see them because if a black hole doesn't accrete anything that's the only thing that makes it light up a black hole that's not accreting is just sitting there it's dark you're looking out you don't see it but as soon as it starts accreting matter, that matter as it goes around and around and around as it spirals into the black hole, it's giving off x-rays. And then we can see that. And then it might have a jet and we can see that. So if you've got a black hole that's sitting out there and then a star passes by and suddenly that black hole has a meal it didn't have before, then it's gonna light up. So that's what we're seeing now. We've started to discover these tidal disruption events, we call them, where a black hole that we didn't see before suddenly lit up. And it's like, ah, hey, it's now eating something. And is that because it's in a binary system with another star? Or is that because it just happened to make a close flyby of a star system and snacked on the star as it went by? Typically, I think we think it's the latter. I think there are really? um, instances of, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's stuff in space and sometimes things pass a little too close. You know, I don't know if you remember all the fuss around um, G2, the gas cloud mm -hmm. that made yep. a close approach to the black hole at the center of our galaxy a few years back. And like, there was a lot of excitement around that because we were hoping that this would come in and be like this snack for our black hole. Our black hole is usually very quiet. We don't have jets coming out of Sag A star, but um, we were hoping that like, when this gas cloud came in, maybe it would get a little more active and we would see that increase in activity and that would really kind of solidify our theories of how this works. Right, that's really interesting, yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but I mean, in that situation, I mean, people always ask like, you know, can a black hole come through the solar system and what would it cause? And, you know, yes and awfulness are the answers. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. But the fact that the planets orbit the, the sun nicely and have yep. done so for four and a half billion years sort of tells us that it clearly it's not a very common, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, like, exactly. Like and, and it's also important to remember that a black hole doesn't actually suck stuff in. It, you know, if our sun turned into a black hole tomorrow, 
we would just keep orbiting around. Like we wouldn't get sucked into mm -hmm. the sun. Yeah. We're in a stable orbit where we're at. It would get a little colder, but <laughs> nothing else would change. So yeah, you know, black hole, depending on the size, has to be pretty close to to make an impact. Yeah. But a but a but a black hole wandering, making its way through the solar system and back out again would cause a certain amount of mayhem. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. yeah. But I mean, the <laughs> fact that, again, like the fact that the 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 planets orbit the, the sun nicely tells us that it hasn't happened yet. That's right. Um, awesome. So uh, as we start to wrap things up here, uh, where can people, one, get involved with some of the projects that you're working on? If you're a graduate student, like at what point should people start reaching out to Astrobytes and trying to get involved? Yeah, um, so astrobytes.org is the website and um, we do a hiring call every fall. I say hiring, Astrobytes authors don't get paid. <laughs> but um, we invite astronomy graduate students to apply in the fall um, and whether or not you're selected to be an author, if you're interested in writing for Astrobytes at any point, uh, we do accept guest posts. There's a little link at the top of the page on the homepage that says submit a guest post or something to that effect. And we're always happy to mm -hmm. hear from people and have them suggest posts that they want to write about. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so that's the main way. And then with with Nova and and the and the journals. Uh, with Nova, so I don't currently have a, a guest author program set up. Um, the main way that somebody might be involved in Nova is that we have a, a AAS Media Fellow is the, the position. So that goes to a, an astronomy or planetary sciences grad student and changes out every year or two years, depending. So that's a position you can apply for if you're interested in doing writing for AAS Nova and also working with the AAS press officer, Rick Feinberg, mm -hmm. to do more press related things. And you recently acquired a magazine um is there are you working on that at all or is that uh hands off so far it's hands off so far i yeah. think we've been talking about ways of increasing our collaboration um, yeah. but yeah absolutely uh yeah we've got a lot of people that, that write for universe today who also write for sky and telescope uh -huh. so um I yeah definitely, no, you know, we're, they're definitely we're really excited about that yeah, it's great. I'm 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 so happy that Sky and Telescope found a home with the American Astronomical Society. Seeing that Rick was the original uh, editor of the of the magazine, and yeah. uh, and to see that he's been able to sort of uh, get a chance to to do this again through his work through the AAAS is 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 wonderful. So yeah, we're we're really psyched. It's nice to have another outlet through which we can you know. Be a part of the amateur astronomy community yeah. in particular yeah well Susanna thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today I really appreciate it and uh, I hope you have a relatively painless and safe um, <laughs> uh, quarantine over the next couple of weeks thank and you. I and I look forward to seeing what happens with the double ace experiment uh, if you guys are able to pull this off as a as a virtual meeting absolutely yeah. post it of course we'll be uh, <laughs> we'll be reporting on it all right. Yep. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye. Take care.